All right. So I think we're almost there. Hey, Smitty, this is Kevin. I'm the uh, engineer here for the podcast. So this is recorded, so we can edit stuff out if you... Uh... Can I cuss? Oh, yeah. Do I have to wash my mouth? <laughs> yeah, because I have a dirty, dirty mouth. <laughs> yeah. Don't we all, man? <laughs> all right. So I'm going to do an intro. We'll be like, uh, we're, today we're joined by... Do you want to be referred to as Army Infantryman or Army Sniper? You can just say Infantryman's fine. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. That's cool. I'll do a quick intro. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. Today, our guest is former Army infantryman Taylor Smith. Yo, Smitty, thanks for joining us, man. Good talking to you. What year did you join the Army, and like, why did you decide to go into the infantry? I joined the Army, I think my official like start date was March 13, 2006. At that point, I was, I was a biology tech working in the biology lab at my uh, community college. And I was going, I was working on a, uh, the beginnings of a biology degree. I don't know, man. I mean, true to my nature, pretty much through most of my life, I just got, I got bored with it and I was wanting to get out and do something exciting. You know, I wanted adventure, I guess would be the, the number one word adventure. And, uh, the war was going on and I was like, why am I not taking part in that? I should, I should do something. And, uh, I joined and to me, I mean, I don't know. Like, infantry was always infantry. Before I even really knew what the infantry was, necessarily, it was, it was that's what I wanted to do. Did you have family that was in the military? I did. I've tracked that, that I know about back to World War One. My great-grandfather, James Smith, was an uh, infantryman. Uh, he was in the Battle of Melis-Argonne, France. Biggest thing that he took part of. But, and then I have an uncle who was an artilleryman during World War II who fought in Africa. What did your your parents? What did they think when you when you signed up? Oh, they supported it very much. You're from Texas, a good old boy. Yeah, I mean, I'm from Texas, but I'm from big city Texas. I wouldn't I wouldn't call myself a good old boy. <laughs> right, you're you're not a shit stomping hillbilly. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm not much. Of, I'm a total suburban white dude. I guess <laughs> you could say. <laughs> yeah, so that leads me to my next question. So well, I am Texas. Yeah, so you're from, you're from Dallas, and then you get your duty assignment. It's Fort Drum, like the coldest duty location in the Army. Like, I'm from Alabama, and that was a shock to me. What was it like for you to make that transition up there? That was the first time ever really seeing, uh, like, snow. Like, snow. <laughs> so you, you know, in, in Texas or Dallas, you know, you can get, uh, like, sleet and that slushy shit. But, uh, no. Fort Drum, New York, northern New York, you get that snow. It's piled up six feet high, you know. And I grew up in, like, South Garland, which is a heavy Hispanic influence, uh, their culture, food-wise, and uh, like there's none of that up in northern New York, and uh, that was a pretty big shock. I was like, whoa. Yeah. That was, a, that was a, a noticeable difference. The locals up there are a little more kind of rude than I guess <laughs> they, than you find in Texas. I remember holding the door open for a lady. She was offended that I held the door open for her. She was like, yeah, you know, I don't need you holding the door open for me. I was like, oh. Yeah, the fuck out of me, lady. My bad. <laughs> but that was. But I love Fort Drum. I miss Fort Drum. Do you miss Fort There's Drum? About hard winters or that you, really make you appreciate spring and summer. That's true. But do you think it's more you miss Fort Drum or do you miss like one, three, two? Both. Both. Yeah. I kind of like living in a smaller town area, with Syracuse being like what, what was it? What was it like forty-five minutes to an hour away? Yeah. If you wanted to get in, into like a more of a city city set. So that was cool. All right, so let's talk about the first tour. So what month did you get the drum? Oh, man. I probably should have 
went through my papers and orders <laughs> before this. I want to say August, like late August, I got the drum 2006. We were in Afghanistan already. You guys unit, are right? Ford. Yeah, yeah, no, you guys are Ford. So then you, you came over point, and joined I us. Did, it ended up being, I think, about 15 to 16 months. I did eight months out of that deployment. So you come over as a, I guess, like a quasi-replacement soldier, and then you, you were sent to Alpha Company, so you straight to the Korangal, right? Yes. So, you know, I didn't know that, I, where, where I, what company necessarily I was going to until I got over there. I was originally, I went in, I showed up to, to Fort Drum with, a, with dudes that I went through basic training with, and a lot of us went to 132. About a month later, we ended up overseas, and originally I was supposed to go to Charlie Company, Combat Company, and then right at the last minute, I got pulled over to Alpha Company, First Platoon Alpha Company. And that's who I was with for the deployment. So let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about the Korangal. Do you remember your first firefight? Yeah, so I was thinking about this question. And, like, combat's a spectrum. You know, you have everything from, you know, a few pop shots that, you know, the farmer might do because he's tired of you guys. You know, he's tired of the people stomping through his fields or some shit to... The full-blown, you know, complex, coordinated attacks. So I'd, I'd say the first, like, real, real, real fire uh, skirmishes. So, like, you know, the enemy would fire at us a few times, maybe squeeze off, you know, a mag at a fire base or, or at our platoon or squad, whoever was out on control. We'd return fire, maybe call in some indirect. That right there was like a, a daily thing. That was normal. But the first, like, firefight, like legitimate firefight that I was in where I was like a fucking firefight happened. I'd maybe been there three months, maybe more, three or four months. We had set up Firebase Vegas by then. Firebase Vegas was established and we had an OP called OP Rock. It was a small outcropping. Uh, it's a space surrounded by mainly boulders and the gun positions were set in like the nooks and crannies of these uh, boulders built up with sandbags. One morning, my team, we get woken up, you know, we're going to rotate guard out to OP, out to OP Rock. So we, we wake up, just like any other nor normal morning, you know, it's uh, daybreak, it's kind of it's misty in the mountains. We go out, we replace the guys up on OP Rock, we do our handover, they go back down to, to Vegas, and it's just uh, the fire team. So it was like a three-guy fire team. They, you know, they kind of hung out on the 240 position. And then there was an FO, me, my team leader, and another rifleman. So we're all set up. And we hadn't been up there but five minutes, man. I go up there. I set my weapon down. I don't have my K-Pot on or nothing, dude. I just got my IBA on. Everybody, nobody has all their shit on yet, uh, which is kind of, you know, ate up. Right. <laughs> Yeah, X that part out. Edit that part out. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so I, I do my radio check. I go up there. I'm on the my, my first spot's on the radio, so I go up there and I do my radio check with Vegas. And then a single pop shot rings out. Just you know, it's a little weird for that time of morning. There was something different about the pop shot ring out, man. And I swear, dude, the the valley like the whole valley got quiet for like two seconds, and then. Man, all hell opened up. Not just on us, but it ended up being a, a coordinated attack on the Cornwall outpost. Not Firebase Vegas necessarily, because the Firebase was nestled up right up 
against the, the cliff, or not the cliff side, but the mountain side. So it, it was more of a difficult place to attack. But they had us on OP Rock dialed in. And then they also hit the bridge site on the northernmost point of the valley. It was surreal, dude. I consider this my first, like, firefight, firefight. Time seemed to, like, slow down, dude. My, the adrenaline pump was, was, like, instant. I don't know, man. At least two or three PKM, RP, uh, a heavy, a heavier machine gun, they had dialed in on us with, with RPGs. So, initially, we were caught off guard. The way the, the OP was set up, it was real kind of hilly. So nothing was flat. So, so, you know, one position was over here, but you had to crawl up a hill a little bit to get to the other one. So all the positions are kind of cut off from each other, not by much, to where you couldn't exactly see one another. So I take cover in my position, and I attempt to return fire. You know, all I have at this point is my M4. I'm laying around into places on the mountainside where I suspect enemy position might be. My fire was probably not effective in any sort of, any sort of way. I just remember we were pinned down, man. Nobody could move. It was uh, it was crazy. How long of a firefight was it? Looking back on it, man, I don't even know, dude. Ten minutes, maybe? I got pinned down. I was attempting to return fire. I remember this like like it happened yesterday, this, this part. Across the, the valley from a village, an RPG. I didn't know what it was at the time. This was my first real close encounter with an RPG. Like, I'd seen them explode, and I'd seen them using firefights, but they were a distance away from me. So this was like my first close encounter with an RPG. And I saw, I see the, you know, I see the ignition of it from across the valley, and you see, like, the fire and the flames kicking out from the back end of it. And I, you know, I froze. I froze. Not out of fear, necessarily, but I, I it's just so surreal seeing this shit for the first time. Looked like it was coming straight for me, dude. And I just watched it. I watched it just coming and coming and coming and coming, and then it flew right over my head. Seems like I could have reached up and grabbed it if I wanted to. At that moment, while that had happened, what was happening, my team leader had grabbed an AT4. He was going to, you know, launch it across the valley at where in the general area of where that uh, RPG came from. The RPG flew over my head, slammed into what I thought was right where he was. It slammed in, you know, the explosion happened. You know, I look back, it's dust and shit everywhere. You, you know, your, your hearing's all messed in the ee. It's uh, hard to hear. You're a little disoriented, you know, after, after like close explosions. And I'm looking and my team leader's not there no more. So to me, I'm like, holy fuck. You know, he's gone. So at that point, the FO... He came around the little hill on top. He got shook up by the uh, the blast of the RPG. So he's like, con- you know, he's confu- not confused, but he's, you know, his uh, orientation's all fucked up. So he's kind of like standing up. He's not taking cover. And there's, when I say we're pinned down and we had multiple machine guns pointed at us, I mean, there's rounds impacting everywhere. Rocks, you know, you know, they're impacting so close to your face that they ricochet from the rock. The rocks are, you know, they're, they're hitting you in the face. We we had a uh, foxhole, so I, I go and I grabbed him and I, I threw him down into the foxhole. The other rifleman made his way around and he had a saw. So we put the saw up on the position and started returning fire over to where the RPG 
came from in that general area. At that point, we got our asses saved by really good uh, indirect started coming in. And uh, at that point, the enemy fire lulled down. And uh, for the most part, the firefight was over. So my leader was able to get up to OP Rock. You know, he started to take command and organize things. My team leader was wounded. He was real strapped up. He took uh, dozens of, of, sh- of shrapnel wounds, ranging from, you know, the size of, uh, you know, a penny to size of like a, you know, a baseball, I believe. I think a, a big chunk out of his butt cheek was taken out, I believe. But we, uh, we secured the landing zone. He was lifted out. And, dude, I don't it, – it could have been – dude, looking back on it now, man, I don't know. It could have been like five minutes to, to ten minutes. So uh, two questions this. One, were you like, that's what I joined to do. That's why I wanted to be infantry. And then two, did that one prepare you for the rest of them? Yeah. Well, it's like a mixed feeling, you know, because that's why you're there. You're there to engage the enemy, kill the enemy. You're there to get it on. You know, but at the same time, my team leader got hit. You know, and for a few minutes, I thought he was dead. I thought he was gone. You know, but then, thank God, he, he was alive. Uh, but he was hit, so you're, like, you're worried about him. But at the same time, you held your own, and you did what we could have done. I mean, we were straight pinned down. You could, like, you could not move around. It was, it was crazy. That held, the, I guess, the, the bar high with firefights. Yeah, I mean, anything below that, you're more calm with it. You still get the you still get the uh, the adrenaline rush, but it's not such a, a punch in the fucking face. You know what I mean? At this point in time, when when this firefight had happened, I mean, I had been in the army like nine months, you know, and I had been out of basic training like four months or some shit. You know what I mean? So, but it, it did it. It helped me in the long run be a leader when it came time to direct other soldiers under similar levels of combat or violence being, you know, since I was experienced that so early on when it came time to maneuver dudes or, or, or perform my job as a, a sniper team leader or as a sniper or as a sniper section leader, you're more calm. You're more prepared for it because generally most ticks like that aren't such a, a punch in the fucking face. So that was, that makes sense. yeah, totally. So that was midway through uh, your eight months over the next four months, did you have many more that were that intense? I mean, there were some pretty heavy firefights, but I'd say no, just because, I mean, I was pinned down into, you know, and this is just a guesstimation, but, uh, you know, an eight-foot-by-eight-foot eight area on the side of this rock outcropping. So and it's a different feeling than being able to, like, when, when you're in a firefight, you have freedom of movement to take cover. I go back. We hadn't also, when this attack happened, we had no comms. So Firebase Vegas was an, unable... To communicate with us, we were unable to communicate with them. So they had no idea what was going on. They didn't know who was wounded. They didn't know who was dead. They didn't know anything. And we didn't know. We didn't know. We didn't find out how coordinated and complex of an attack it was until, until after the fact. So it was kind of isolating. Like, did you feel alone since you didn't have comms with the outside? You know, it's not, no, no, it's not that you feel alone. It's just, it's like, there's only been one other time I felt like it's, it's, it's just your trap, man. It's a different feeling than being like, to be able to maneuver, because that's what you do, you know, as a platoon. You maneuver on the enemy, or you're able to move. You get what I mean? Yeah. Maneuver onto the enemy, you know, break contact in exfil. We couldn't do any of that. So it's a different feeling than in a firefight where the enemy 
firepower might might be on the same level as that one day, but we have you know at full you know I can I can talk to my platoon sergeant, I can talk to my PL, I can talk to other squad leaders. We can communicate and figure out how to respond to this contact, and we have freedom of movement to maneuver on the enemy or break contact if we have to. You know that day none of that existed, and that's what makes that one day so much more intense as the other days to where the firepower was was matched. The enemy came to play just as hard, but on most of the other times, I had all those other things. You know, there's clear communication through the chain of command of the platoon. Uh, there was freedom of movement to engage or expel, you know? Totally. No, it makes total sense, man. All right, so we'll fast forward then to the next tour. Uh, between the two tours, you went to sniper school, and you were Kunar Province 2007, um, and then we're back home 2008 and 2009, back out to Kunar province. Uh, the second tour, you'd gone to sniper school. What was your, what was your responsibility at this point by the time we deployed the second time? By the second deployment, I was sniper team one, team leader, ghost one. But I also, the, our medic, for the most part, was attached to our squad. So uh, I helped manage him as well. But other than that, that mission was a little different for the scouts because we were kind of, uh, we did a lot more line platoon type jobs than we did actual uh, overwatches and uh, reconnaissance type work. The biggest difference between, I'd say, my second deployment and uh, the first deployment was uh, living conditions that greatly improved from going from the Gall going into to Joyce, going into Fob Joyce. I mean, it was like night and day living conditions. And other than Barge Natal, it was a pretty, for the most part, quiet. Dip- I want to say, I don't know, and I, I could be wrong on this, but I want to say, I don't know if we made much, if any, contact outside of Barge Natal. And Barge Natal, was, was, it was like two months, right? Like yeah. about a two-month-long battle? Yeah. There were some IEDs, like, out on the routes and a lot of rockets and stuff, but there wasn't, it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, 40 SIGX on the board every day. You want to talk about Barge Matal a little bit? Yeah, Barge Matal, man. I missed the first week or so of Barge Matal because I was in um, Bagram because I had broken, I had fractured my eye socket doing a, uh, we were boxing. What was it, 4th of July? Didn't we do it? It was 4th of July on Joyce, right? It was like boxing and grilling and all that stuff going on. Yeah, we first saw Gonzalez built that big boxing ring out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that one girl got her... No, never mind. <laughs> One girl got the brakes beat off of her by the... <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll never forget that. That was funny. But, uh, yeah, I ended up having a fractured eye socket. I had to go to Bagram. They almost sent me to Germany for surgery on my eye. Thank God I didn't. And uh, that's when Barge Talk kicked off. And I went from Bagram, and then I, I went back to Joyce to gear up, and then we went to Alpha Company's area, and then from there we were taken by Bird into Barge Matal. So I actually went into Barge Matal with a bunch of my homies from First Platoon Alpha Company. And do you remember what the mission was out there? Because it was kind of far removed from, it, like it wasn't near Joyce or Penich or anything like that. It was like way out there. They had been building a road or, or at least re- like making the road better. ACO was in charge of that. I remember when we first got into the country, like they built their, their base from like the ground up. Alpha Company did that deployment. Yeah, it wasn't even Seawire. They had like some one shithole of a building that they set the talk up in. Other than that, people were living out of their rucks again. But I mean, they greatly improved. I mean, it was a full-blown, really nice company post. 
Oh, yeah. By the end there, it was really nice. Barge Batal is kind of like being back in the cop, right? Like, it was pretty intense. Yeah, the combat was pretty heavy there, especially on their push-in. Man, I wish I had been there on the push-in. But, yeah, it was like a real big toe-to-toe fight with, uh, with the Taliban on the west and east sides of, uh, of the river. By the time I've gotten there, small arms contacts did happen, but near the end, what took over was the enemy sniper fire. Uh, and that really took over a lot of the day-to-day because, you know, you have to, uh, you have to set up screens everywhere, blinds everywhere. So you were in danger walking, you know, from, from your hooch to, you know, to take a shit. But, I mean, it's 1-3-2, so we took it all pretty well in stride. I mean, it didn't, I mean, we all kept a pretty good attitude about it, even though he was uh, effective. We conducted counter-sniper operations for over a month, and, I mean, I couldn't tell you if it was one sniper or two snipers. As a sniper section, I mean, we, through glass, I fucked every conceivable, virtually every conceivable inch of that valley. And uh, never, man. One time we came into close proximity to the guy. We were probably about 100 meters of his position below him on the east side of the river. We tried to walk Mark 19 rounds on top of him, but uh, we didn't get him and continued to operate. How many guys did he shoot, do you think? I don't know, dude. Like, all the ones that I saw, that I actually saw, were injuries. Shin injury. Uh, he blew out some dude's shin. There's a, a Latvian soldier over there. He got shot in the groin, like up through his dick, I think. Another guy I saw, he got shot in the chest. Uh, he survived, like, around, like, hit him, and then, like, went around, like, followed his ribcage or whatever. So, like, it didn't actually penetrate his chest cavity, thank God. So he rebounded from that. You got hit out there at one point, right? Yeah, I took some... I got rocked by an RPG. It was another, it was another close encounter with an RPG. But it exploded probably about... 15 or so feet behind me. I got some, I can't hear much uh, shit out of my right ear anymore. Uh, concussion, blew out my eardrum, and some light superficial shrapnel in uh, the back of my right shoulder. You know, it was fun. They just took it out right there, and that was, that was the end of that. Just return to duty? Oh, yeah. Well, I couldn't really hear shit very much for like two days. Then my hearing's kind of steadily gotten worse. <laughs> Third deployment. How much do you want to talk about that? Third deployment, man, was... That was a crazy deployment, dude. That was down to Kandahar province, right? The way I like to describe that area, I like to think Mad Max. It's just like wasteland. You know, they grow grapes and, and poppy over there, but, like, it's really just nothing attractive about it. Like, the mountains, at least in Kunar, even the Korngal, like, in the spring, you know, for all the violence and carnage that, that you know, that goes on, that, that went on there, I do in the spring, it was gorgeous. The mountain was gorgeous, you know. Kandahar province, there's not much going on. It's kind of like this barren wasteland nothing much out there the the biggest deal i think with that deployment was one three two at that point most of our combat experience as a battalion was uh small arms and we you know we did uh deal with a lot of indirect sometimes you know recoilless type fire but we had never dealt with a lot of ied threats and stuff so when we got over to uh over into kandahar over around in the zari district we came into you know you know, the enemy's TTP over there, we were not as used to as we were the last couple of deployments. And these IEDs in the beginning, they weren't, you know, what you'd say mounted IEDs. They, these IEDs weren't aimed or targeting vehicles. They were aimed at and targeting at foot patrols. So most missions in the beginning of that deployment and throughout the deployment of the, of the unit previous to us was mainly foot patrols. 
So you're essentially traveling, you're climbing through these grape rows uh, and these opium fields, and uh, it's it's just bombs everywhere, dude. Fucking bombs everywhere, booby traps everywhere, and it totally dictated everything about the mission. We knew that going in, so we prepped the best we could and trained the best we could for it before we got over there. But then once we got over there, you know, we had to deal with the reality that, hey, man, if you, you know, if you venture outside this file that's been cleared, this maybe at most, you know, your two foot by two foot area that's been cleared in front of you, if you, if you leave that file, you, you're very more than likely going to step on a bomb. And it's not just going to kill you. It's probably going to kill you and, and the people surrounding you. So that was a really new threat. And, you know, that keeps the anxiety high that you deal with that every day. And then once, once people start dying, that, you know, it really hits home. And you see that, like, as uh, prior deployments, like, you could get wounded. Like, you know, it was a, a wound, like the wounding I had. You know, it's not shit compared to the wounding that, that happened on that third deployment. Because if you got wounded, you know, WIA in the Korngal or in the other deployment might mean, you know, I got shot. This isn't a dick. Or, you know, dick measuring contest or anything, but that third deployment, the stakes were high. If you got wounded, it more than likely meant, you know, an amputation. You know, you lost an arm, you lost both legs, something along those lines. So the anxiety of the day-to-day when you left the wire, for me, was uh, more intense than, I guess, on the other employments. It's insane, man. And you were telling me there was, like, a one of your guys, like, there was, like, a close call. Like, he stepped on one, and, like, you heard the click, but it was... It didn't work. So that's like, right. Yeah, and it was uh, it was an exfil from a uh, like a little patrol base we had set up in a mud hut, and we were making our way back over to uh, combat companies outpost. And so the, when I say pressure plate, it's not really a, a plate. It's like think about it. It's I mean they use different. You, you, they use pieces of tire. You know they can use. They'll take a water bottle, right, and they'll put one into the wire. You know, like at the top of the water bottle, and then one is the wire at the bottom of the water bottle, and you know, and they bury the water bottle and they cover it up a little bit. So when you step on the water bottle, it connects the two wires, or when you step on the two separate pieces of tire, it connects the two wires. You know, that's what initiates the explosion. Uh, but he had stepped on it, and uh, the detonator, the blasting cap—I don't know shit about fucking bombs—failed. It exploded, but the uh, the HME, the actual explosive, failed to detonate. So it was really just like a loud firecracker type pop with some smoke. Yeah, so that was like, holy fuck. You know, that was the moment you realize you're like, oh, man, that could have went a lot different just then. But we got lucky. And uh, other than that, we managed to get all our deeds back safely, except for for one WIA. But that was from different circumstances. I've got like two more questions to kind of like, they're pretty short, and then we'll wrap it up. How did the Army change you? How did the Army change me? <laughs> the army totally changed me from from the person who I was before the army to the person I am today. I don't know, man. It makes you. It takes the army will take you out of what uh, what what I call the American bubble. So as Americans, we're pretty isolated from the rest of the world. Even when you know with TV and the internet and everything like that, that's not we're not truly connected to other parts of the world. You know, it's all superficial bullshit. So I think Americans take a lot of things for granted. And what one of the main things the Army did for me is it showed me, uh, you know, how terrible some people have it in the world with their conditions and their situations and environments they, they grew up in. A lot of things that I used to take for granted, appreciate now. Yeah, so it gives you perspective. Yeah, you, you totally have a different pers- perspective on everything. You know, and it changes you. You know, once you become 
you make that transition from civilian to you're not just infantryman. Anybody that's experienced a measure of combat, especially those who experienced the measure of combat like over and over and over again, it changes your perspective. Like on it, you're you will never be that civilian ever. You will always be that veteran, I guess. It just changes you, man. I don't know. It's everybody's different, dude. You know what I mean? I can't comment on how it changed anybody other than me. It changed me in good ways, and it changed me in really bad ways, too. So the Army is what you make of it. It can either be the best thing that ever happened to you, or it can be the worst thing that ever happened to you. You say that it changed you in some good ways, some bad ways. Do you think, on the whole, it was a net positive? Yeah, I do. The Army was the best thing that happened to me, as of yet. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change the Army or any of that. I wouldn't, I'd do it all over again. I wouldn't change any of it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, that leads perfectly into my last question. If I had a chance to go back and do it all with 132, <laughs> I'll tell you this. It makes you, or at least it made me a, a guarded person. Like, you know, I made me to be, I used to be kind of a guy that I like to have, I used to like to have friends of all sorts, of all kinds. But now I'm very much a kind of a guarded guy. I prefer a small circle of personal friends. You know, I mean, I operate fine professionally. Uh, but like when it comes to social socializing and stuff, I, per, I prefer a small circle, you know, and that's, that's a big difference from, uh, I guess, pre-army me to, to post-army me or just army me to post-army me. What's probably the thing you missed the most about the army? Probably the same thing everybody says, man, the brotherhood of it. Uh, I had the, the fortune of coming into a unit, you know, I did at a one, three, two and third brigades, third BCTs for Afghan deployments. I was able to do three of them, all with one, three, two, and for the most part, with the same group of people. So the brotherhood, man, it's irreplaceable. You'll never make another buddy or buddies like that. It's hard to describe, dude. But, uh, yeah, definitely the brotherhood. Sense of duty, like purpose or like a calling, knowing you're working for something other than yourself, working for something other than, like, money. You know, it's, it's, it's totally, you do the work for, for the guy to your left and your right. You don't want to fail because you don't want to disappoint the guy to your left and your right. I miss things like that. And I miss being able to just kind of like say blunt ass shit and cuss <laughs> and, you know, things like that. <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. I like to be able to be like, oh, you know, fuck, that's stupid. But right. if you do that in a civilian workplace now, I'm like, oh my God, that guy's crazy. But no, that thing's just stupid. Right. You know, you have to readjust social norms, you know, civilian social norms, as opposed to, like, military and infantry social norms. Right. All right, so here's my actual last question. Uh, so, like, say you meet an 18-year-old kid, he's just out of high school, doesn't know what to do. Uh, would you recommend for him to join the Army? I would, but after serious consideration of him making sure that's what he wants to do, or he or she, that's what they want to do. Because you will lose a decent amount of freedom for a while. And, I mean, yeah, you're probably going gonna, gonna to be at the bottom of the rung, and, and people are going to let you know you're at the bottom of the rung for the first couple of years so you start making rank and stuff. But I always encourage it after you really know that's what you want to do. Because you never know. In today's world, man, we live in a chaotic world. So we might not be at war right now, but... Three years into your four-year enlistment, you might end up, and then you find your – I mean, you know you, you know the stories. Now you're asked to stop loss for an additional 18 – you know what I mean? So it can go a lot of ways in the Army. <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. 
you know, you can go in it with, I'm going to do my four years and get out and go to fucking whatever school. And, you know, yeah. it'll probably change. Uncle Sam's got different plans for you. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody, I'm sure, Air Force, Navy, Marines, Army, being a service member is not a, it's a lifestyle. Yeah. So it's kind of a more than a full-time job. It's something, especially if you want to succeed and grow in it, you know, it's going to take over your life. So you got to make sure that you're willing to, to give up freedom like that, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally, man. Well, hey, dude, it was great to talk to you, man. We got to keep in touch. Yeah, dude, no worries. Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate you doing this. You're welcome, dude. No problem, man. It was good talking to you. Yeah, you too, man. Take care, all right? Yeah. All right, Later, see, you. Guys. see you, brother. Bye. I'll throw it out there, man. I mean, I don't, I'm, I don't like making things dark, but uh, you know, for a lot of guys, after they get out, man, they, it's a new sense of like, it's like a unique loneliness, especially if you don't stay around the base to where your dudes are at. That's what dudes know that. I mean, you guys aren't the only ones out there dealing with that kind of stuff. You're not alone. Just be proactive about it, like you would any other problem or obstacle in your life. The solutions are out there. The resources are available. You just got to make those, those first steps figuring it out there is life after experiences and and your time in i think that was a really good way to put it man that's a big point that there's life out there after those experiences that's really solid and you know when i say that i in no way ever fucking mean forget that's not what i fucking mean but what i mean is you know one of the best ways you can remember your buddies that didn't come back is to live life man live the life to the fullest because they don't get to. So remember them in those instances when you go out and, you know, you have those really happy times. I don't know. That's the way I try to think about it. 